fiber in place. Welcome to this edition of Still in the Race, the podcast about running, except for when it's not, which at this moment, it is decidedly not. The problem with having a trained medical professional who spent much of her career in orthopedics is that she can read the results of your MRI. Darkness had set in when she pulled up my files online and began reviewing the results. I sat quietly, reading a book, pretending that I wasn't interested, waiting for the diagnosis. Damn, she said quietly. It's crucial to know that my wife has a giant personality. When she's looking at clothes, I always jump in, making recommendations that are always bright colors and bold patterns. She doesn't enter rooms, she bursts into them. So every time that she picks out something brown, gray, or traditional, I immediately tell her all the reasons she should never wear anything bland. I've never been able to get her all the way to Grateful Dead tie-dye, but I keep trying. Part of her personality is that she has a lot to say about everything, which is why a one-word description of my test results just hung in the room. Is that like, what a damn fine knee you have, or damn damn? To be fair, she had said it with the enunciation of a southern evangelical minister, making it a multi-syllable statement, but still, just one word. Damn damn, she looked at me over her glasses. I'm going to get all of this medically wrong, but she started scrolling down her computer screen. Large, complex, medical meniscus tear. Does that mean that they're impressed with the way that I injured myself? Apparently it wasn't funny. Blank stare. It means repairing it is going to be complex. Anterior horn lateral meniscus tear. Horn? You managed to create a tear that looks like the horn on a mountain goat. Not good? Not good. She looked at me to make sure that I didn't have anything else clever to say. Foreign bodies, up to six millimeters, she continued. Foreign bodies? Bone fragments from where you tore it off the bone. This time, I managed not to comment. The list went on and included references to arthritis and a cyst on the back of my knee. But long before she wrapped up, it felt like the air had been taken out of the room. And she felt compelled to show me a picture of what to expect, which included separating my knee to access the injured areas. The good news remains that regardless of the prognosis, the healing time is relatively short, so after a couple days, I started to feel optimistic, right up to the point where we updated our children and realized that I had failed as a parent. There's a great story here for them if they would just take it, but that's not the way it played out. As we told them about my injury and the possible outcomes, two of them actually laughed on the phone. The third I told in person, and he just shook his head and smiled. There was none of... Dad's so manly he can run for miles with multiple tears in his knee. It was only laughter, and that's hilarious. It's just not what a father hopes to hear, even if they're right. I've raised monsters. There are always lines before and after to be organized life by. There's before marriage and after, before children and after, and for all of us, the swath that the pandemic has carved through time. I'm left wondering if this is one of those times, and like so many other entries, I looked back to other lines in my life and found two essays. On their own, I was never particularly enthralled with either, so I smashed them together and discovered that what I always thought were two stories about our dog Lily were actually about our life shifting. It just took her to make it obvious eight years later.
Life Changes Faced with the shifting seasons as we became empty nesters, we determined that a complete life change was in order. After decades in the same town, and with almost no serious discussion, I accepted a position an hour and a half away, leased a small apartment on the 12th floor of a building that overlooked the city, and stumbled into the next chapter of life. A new place, a new perspective, new friends, a new start. Our kids were all starting lives of their own scattered throughout the planet, and our friends were headed to new locations as retirement approached. There wasn't homework or dances or games or concerts or an overblown teenage crisis that would pull us apart regardless of our best intention plans. For the first time in many years, it was all about us, just the two of us. Except we forgot to include the dog in our plans. What were we going to do about Lily? We were on the 12th floor of a building with no outdoor space. Surely it was a minor obstacle that two educated adults could handle without derailing their life plans. As they often do, it's time to provide a little context. At the time, I was driving a Ford. I liked my car. It was a machine that generally performed its appointed task, and based on my sketchy history with dealing with anything mechanical, if it works, I'm a fan. My wife drives a BMW. She loves her cars. She has a very personal relationship with her cars. They are making a huge mistake not calling her for an endorsement. Now, dogs that ride in BMWs are not allowed to shed. Dogs that shed ride in a Ford. We owned a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel that was so proud of her designer coat that she tried to replace it daily. She was the kind of dog that has a picture taken laying on the hood of the BMW with a model dressed in an evening gown and then rides home in the Ford from the photo shoot where she blankets the inside of the vehicle with hair brought on by the stress from the session. I drove home to pick up the dog, a small sacrifice to start our new life. Most people will tell you that dogs love cars, or, as I have learned, most dogs love cars. Our dog hated cars. She whines. Not when she first gets in, not part of the time. She whines the entire time. Every time. It's one of those piercing tones that can make you want to throw open the door and die from a moving vehicle after about two minutes. She was so relentless that if not for my thoughts of driving off a cliff, I would have admired her commitment. Finally, back to where we started the story, I loaded her cage and food and leash and treats and pillow and favorite toys into the Ford and pointed it back toward the city. With 88 minutes remaining in my 90-minute trip, I turned the radio up loud enough to drown her out. With 81 minutes to go, I changed the channel from NPR to a jazz station offering a more sustained level of sound. With 74 minutes remaining, I frantically searched for a heavy metal station and began loudly singing along with songs that I didn't know the lyrics to. In general, in general, I settled for death, destruction, and sexual conquest themes. They seemed to fit. When I finally arrived at the apartment, I fell out of the car and tried to concentrate on making the transition from stress to the point of desperately wanting to strangle my wife's beloved pet to calm and loving spouse. It turned out that a 12-floor elevator ride wasn't quite enough time. Together, Dragging her cage and food and treats and pillow and favorite toys, we piled into the elevator and made our way to the 12th floor. Apparently, there's enough similarity between the elevator and a car that the sound and motion triggered her paranoid reaction and she loudly whined throughout our entire climb. Once inside the small apartment, she tore through every room for a quick exploration, barked at, well, nothing, and then returned to the door and resumed her whining and rapidly spun in a circle several times. We may have had dinner reservations in less than a half hour, and the look on my wife's eye clearly stressed that I wasn't even close to dressed appropriately. But even more pressing was that the dog's bladder had reservations of its own. 
I grabbed the leash and headed back down the elevator with the not-so-subtle reminder to make it fast or we were going to miss our seating. Stepping outside and being greeted by the city, I was in a hurry. The dog was gripped with panic. Our home was located on a rural cul-de-sac that backed up to a wooded area. It's a quiet place where the only traffic is from the half-dozen neighbors that live on the street. People that have lived in the area for decades didn't know where our road was. An exciting evening for a dog was when a bird dared to invade her space, and she made a gallant effort to appear like a real dog by chasing it off. She would be filled with pride, and we all pretended that we felt much safer now that the robin had moved from the grass to the fence post, unfazed by our vicious protector who strutted back in the house. Back in the city, there was nothing that resembled the only home that she had ever known. Still, there was no reason for me to believe that she couldn't make the transition. Several green spaces around the apartment complex were designed specifically for dogs in need. I hooked up her leash and set off in search of the closest appropriate spot for her to relieve herself. Millions of people across the globe with normal lives have dogs in the city. I could do this. No problem. Big problem. Regardless of how many green spaces that I found for her, there were cars and people and noise and lights and more cars and people and noise and lights. An endless stream of stimulus for an animal still recalling that long-ago day when a squirrel dared to enter her realm. She didn't pee. She didn't pee an hour later during her walk that I had to leave dinner for. She didn't pee two hours later. She didn't pee in the middle of the night during her walk in the pouring rain. She didn't pee at six in the morning as I stumbled half asleep. She didn't pee at all. She whined. Finally, after a decidedly unromantic sleepless night and an unsuccessful eighth walk, my wife arrived at the only possible conclusion. The dog had to be driven home before she exploded. There we were, facing the very real possibility that there would be no weekends exploring the city together as we worked to redefine our lives. The dog's bladder had trumped our well-intentioned plans. My wife, she'd drive home in silence. I would drive home with the radio blaring, unsuccessfully trying to drown out the dog's relentless whining that was only exacerbated by her desperate need to pee. I saw it as a window into my future. The next weekend, we gave it another try, and the results were very much the same. It was rapidly becoming clear that our plans were unraveling. Whatever the two of us wanted, whatever grand ideas we had, the dog was assuming her rightful place and loudly proclaiming that she alone would decide where we called home, and it clearly wouldn't be the apartment we had so carefully picked out. How would I reach the point where an 18-pound creature had assumed control over my life? It was clear. Her decision had been made regarding the city, and it was final. Or so I thought, until what was to be our last walk when without warning, she raised her leg and looked back at me as if to clarify who was in charge. I gave her a giant hug and immediately sent my wife a detailed text with the good news. The next morning, I would tell my justifiably bewildered children about our great success with the moment-by-moment -moment detail when I called and woke them early the next morning, reinforcing their growing preconception that trips home needed to be both less frequent and as brief as possible. This miracle of survival, routinely performed by every living creature since the onset of life on the planet, normally wouldn't stand out as having any particular significance, or at least it shouldn't have been as significant as it turned out to be. Directly across the street from the small patch of grass, adjacent to a multi-level parking garage where she had finally elected to end her protest and relieve herself, stands a 12,000-seat stadium that is home to the minor league hockey affiliate of the Detroit Red Wings. It's the largest venue in the area for major tours, making it a constant destination where thousands converge on a regular basis. 
What I didn't realize during our moment of victory was that her decision to grace the city with her presence came with a very specific term. As I would learn in the days to come, much to my irritation as I went from place to place while she sat staring up at me with equal amounts of frustration, was that that singular spot was it. In the entire city, that was it. That was the place. Only that triangle of trampled grass at one of the busiest corners in the downtown district met her standards. Dozens of other green areas within a short walking distance, parks specifically designed for dog owners, but that one lone chunk of land in front of the parking garage was it. It was as if she had decreed, I will come to the city and take my rightful place among the masses, but I will only pee in this triangle, from the tree to the sidewalk to the brick wall. That alone shall be my place. She was prepared to begin assimilating in our corner of the city, but only under her very specific conditions. The section of the city that was ours set partway up Heritage Hill on the border of the historic district. It covered two blocks to the east, six to the west, two to the north, and three to the south. Like everyone that makes their home in such a place, it was our own city within the city where we spent most of our free hours, rarely venturing beyond where we could walk. Two locations to get sushi, a wine bar, four coffee spots, a comedy club, seven restaurants, two brew pubs, five bars, a heavy metal club, and so on. They were the kind of places that give a unique signature to those that live there. It wasn't just part of the city, but a gathering point for all ages that made it feel distinguishable from the rest of the city. On concert or hockey nights, a destination point for thousands, or on Sunday mornings, eerily quiet as it recovered from the noise and chaos of the weekend. It's full of blinking lights and loud sounds and cars and buses and crowds and dark entries and narrow unlit alleys that I've never ventured down. And when you are a small ball of enthusiasm and designer fur that everyone wants to hug, you are the queen. Dogs are particularly sensitive to change, like lights and cars and buses and crowds of people. A city, in particular, an area full of bars and restaurants and coffee shops and the crowds attracted to such places, is full of smells and sights that shocked her senses to life. It was as if modern technology was dredging thousands of years of evolution back to the surface. She was suddenly experiencing those long, subdued natural traits that had been deeply buried with very precise breeding and training. She quickly moved beyond the fear of the noise and the stimulus that surrounded her on all sides, soaking it all in and recognizing it as a brave new world to conquer, where people wanted to pet her, drivers yelled out the window at her, and most of all, smells. Everything had a smell. They were all new, and there was no such thing as a bad smell that we might recoil from. There were scraps of food, old bags, the scents of other dogs, cigarette butts, or better yet, the occasional cigar. Most of the spots she darted to at the end of her leash were hard to identify, but there was nothing like the occasional vomit, or the holy grail. And yes, once again, I am merely commenting based on my observations of life, the homeless person in a doorway an absolute cacophony of smells all wrapped together in a bundle that not only had the added benefit of being thrilled to see her, but allowed her to hop up and enjoy a thorough scratching, all of which invariably cost me whatever spare change that I could scrape together. As I noted in the description of the area, there are several bars in the surrounding blocks that cater disproportionately to the thirty-something crowd, and she quickly developed a bond with the many young women that came noisily stumbling out of their doors and instantly morphed into her lifelong friends. They would squeal as she trotted past her nose in the air, reaching down to pet her, or on some occasions sweeping her off the sidewalk to show their equally squealing barmates. They rarely knew her breed, but I would quickly learn she was a copy of the sex in the city dog. I followed behind with a leash, 
now connected to both dog and young woman. The leash and I, two indistinguishable objects with the sole purpose of keeping the precious furball from being run over in the traffic. Regardless, it was a life-changing step forward, and at that moment it seemed fitting that the dog peeing was the pivotal moment. She would do her deed, and I would allow her to be the queen of the city, and we would be on the same team trying to figure out our new life. And, as always, it brought me back to the small things in life, the little things that you could never quite get control of, that proved to be the moments of life that define us. I didn't recognize that time as a line of before and after. However, retrospectively, it has proven to be a very distinct line. It's eight years later, and I'm sitting on the couch, knee-wrapped in ice, 11 hours removed from surgery. The news was not what I had hoped for. The damage was more severe than the MRI had shown, and it's possible that my running days are behind me. However, my hiking, mountain biking, and so much more still lay ahead. At this moment, I wonder if I am at one of those lying-in-the-sand places. So much has changed in her life over the last year. I only wish that Lily was here to guide me along the way once again. Thanks for stopping by this edition of Still in the Race. If you would rather read than listen, much of this content, along with other odd thoughts and observations, find their way to stillintherace.com. Production and editing, care of Trey Jones. You can find him at treyjoneswriter.com. Additional editing and artwork, Astrid Burke. You can find them both at babyfeverpodcast.com. I look forward to next time, and there will be a next time, when I hope to have something to say, but don't count on it.